Tide Smart Talk with Steve O. News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. Well, we don't have a space cowboy, but we have a space scientist. Please. No, but before but that. Before space cowboy. This is a very special day, Steve. Oh, my God. Emily, yeah. what kind of day is this? Today is an anniversary day of sorts. Okay. Yes. Today is our 200th episode of Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O. Oh, wow. Yay. What a surprise. Yes. Is there a cake? Is there a ceremony? Or? <laughs> there is sort of a ceremony in the box over here oh, next boy. to you. We have Open a little the box. Well, I apologize to our guest. We were about to introduce her, but now She's been prepped. She's been prepped. She's ready. <gasps> oh, congratulations. 200th show. 200. A new mic trophy for you. Wow. You started on March 3rd, 2012. Right. How many guests? We've had 263 individual guests on the show. Wow. Accolades are like governors, Pulitzer Prize winners. So 200 shows. So you and I have argued about 196 shows. About 196 yeah. or 97, <laughs> oh, this is, yes. This is excellent right there. Well, Amazing. Well, thank you to our creative department here at Tide Smart Talk and the yes. production. And very, <laughs> the whole crew of us. Very, yes. It's a very thoughtful gift. Uh, did I pay for it? <laughs> Well, I'm course. joking. Of course I pay for it. That, that makes it even more special. Well, thank you, Deb, and thank you, Emily. Congratulations. You're welcome. So back to our space scientist. Thank you for indulging the, the ceremony, but we have Eileen Yinkst, and um, senior research scientist in the Planetary Science Institute that has an affiliation with NASA, right, Eileen? Correct. Uh, most of our funding, the individual scientist, comes from NASA. Fantastic. There's nothing I enjoy more than geology and in uh, <laughs> science. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of all the sciences. But before we get there, why don't we spend a few minutes just uh, introducing yourself to our audience in terms of where you grew up, went to school, how, where your interest first uh, became aligned with science or geology or space. And then we'll talk about uh, the work being done at the Planetary Science Institute. So I don't actually remember a time when I didn't want to be a space scientist. Uh, I think it, I was three, and of course, if you ask my mother, I get younger every time she tells the That's story, funny. but I had a book on space, and it had these big old stickers, and you were supposed to figure out where the stickers went based on what the book said, and of course, I was really disappointed to discover that the stickers in the back were all in order, so there was no you know, game to this at all, but yeah, I, I don't actually remember wanting to be anything else. Some people are called to be pastors or whatever. This is a calling for me. This is what I was so called was to it, do. So did you have a telescope? Was it more planetary as a, as a, as a young girl? Was it looking up? Because it, it feels like there's a lot of movies specifically about young girls. Was it the Jodie Foster movie or the Matthew McConaughey movie? A lot of movies about young girls in the mysticalness of space. I, I don't recall any young boys. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. But what was, what was the first memory of just looking up into the atmosphere, watching Star Trek? Was, was it something? Uh, I was a big Star Trek fan. Oh, and of me course, too. And it was, it was all, it was all uh, syndicated, right? 
Um, I was very disappointed when I, I couldn't have been more older than four or five to discover that the TV guide, I don't know if anybody actually remembers, it used yes. to be a paper TV guide uh, for the three stations that you could get. And at 5 p.m. on Sunday would be listed Star Trek. And, of course, if the football game was still going, right. there was no Star Trek. I'm oh. like, well, it'll show after, won't it? No. <laughs> were, were you original Star Trek? Yeah. Uh, well, Sh- William Shatner, Leonard yeah. Nimoy, or, you know, there's so many different offshoots. You know, Next Generation was kind of cool. Geordi yeah. and uh, Number One and uh, Luke Picard and all that. Luke Picard. Jean-Luc. <laughs> Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc. Well, his Picard. friends. We friends called him Luke. <laughs> of course. Jean-Luc. But yeah, okay. Of course. No, I, I met um, LeVar Burton. Oh, wow. At one point. And I've never been starstruck except for that moment meeting LeVar Burton. And I, all, all I remember is babbling, right? I had my, my Mars Science Laboratory uh, bling t-shirt. It's got all sparkles on it. He's like, Do you, are you really on the mission? I'm like, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, without, because we want to cover your background, but Star Trek, you know, the Gene Roddenberry, there is such, I think, credit given, but even with all the credit, not enough, of not only the artistic vision and the futuristic vision he had, but the social vision and, and, and the technology. But you look back at the Star Trek episodes from 50 years ago, and... It was super smart, you know, going to different planets, deciding everyone's going to wear the same jumpsuit. You know, we're going to go as a team. Forget about, you know, warp speed and all the other stuff. But it was really a fascinating kind of cultural look. And I'm guessing it really opened the eyes of a lot of people, young people, and that, hey, space is a real thing beyond the abstract of looking up at the sky at night. No, that's, that's accurate. I have said before, I went into space science because I couldn't join Starfleet. Right. The exploration aspect of what I do is the driving force in all that I do uh, professionally. So that, you know, when I'm on shift for the Curiosity rover, the first thing I do is sing a song. And the next thing I do is remind everybody that we're working on Mars today. And we are absolutely the luckiest people in the world to be able to do it. We definitely want to talk about the rover, but where do you grow up in the country? So I grew up in uh, the Midwest, uh, southwest Michigan. So if anybody's familiar with uh, Notre Dame, about 20 minutes north of Notre Dame into Michigan. So I'm a Midwesterner, a small town in the Midwest, went to parochial school. So did I. Did you get kicked out after third grade? I did not. Did you? Yes. Oh, sister, so proud. Sister Mary Teresa, she threw a chalk eraser at me because I was talking to Jackie McPherson, and I threw it back. Oh, well done. Well, <laughs> that'll get you kicked again, out. That, that'll yeah. be a separate show when we talk about uh, Catholicism and the, the nuns. But uh, yeah. and you attended Dartmouth? I did. Uh, mm-hmm. Physics and astronomy, you know. Physics and astronomy, astronomy. was my major. And then uh, about my junior's... At Dartmouth, you have to uh, take a broad range of courses. Um, so if, if you're a science major, you still have to take four science courses that are outside your major. And so I was taking geology and, you know, kind of hit my head and said, this is, this is awesome. Um, geology it, being the study of rocks or be, solid matter? Being the study of rocks, uh, it tends to be a little broader than that, though, because atmospheric science comes into it. So if you're a meteorologist... Uh, you you may have majored in terrestrial sciences or geology or something like that. Yeah. But it was just at the time when there was enough data from planetary missions 
of solid surfaces that you could start to look at other planets like geological bodies instead of astronomical ones. And so I came in at a really, really good time. So I modified my major with geology and ended up taking um, geological sciences for my graduate degrees. And then with your graduate degrees at Brown, um, what was your first step after the world of academics in terms of making this a career? Uh, let's see. I was a postdoc at the University of Arizona, so I worked on the Mars Pathfinder mission. And my claim to fame from that period of my life is the front page of the L.A. Times uh, when Mars Polar Lander crashed. We don't actually know if it crashed or not. We assume so. Hard landing. Yeah, litho-breaking is, is, is the geeky term that we use, but um, but that's my claim to fame. I had I had a completely drastically unsuccessful mission. So, you know, talking about that, and then your career is taking you through Mars Exploration Rover, and I want to talk to you about how you ended up here in Maine and what's, what's happening in Brunswick that makes it kind of uh, uh, plays a role relative to current uh, research. But when was, and I don't recall the date, but it's, you know, I grew up in the era in the 60s where the moon landing and the space race with Russia was a big deal, and we, we sent a, a chimp into orbit, and that seemed to work out all right. And to me, I remember the whole nation watching in the words about one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind of being such a collective experience. And Deb, of course, believes it's a myth, but I'm kidding, I Deb. I do not. You, you believe, okay? Okay. So, but landing on the moon was something that felt epic, you know? And this was an era where when you looked at uh, kind of terrestrial uh, technology and cars, I had an old car, and nothing was very sophisticated. So the idea that we could produce a mechanical and technological and propulsion system taking us to the moon and then we had video even though it was very rudimentary we had audio and vi video of these guys bouncing around the moon for me you know there were two pivotal things relative to uh science one was you know uh, Jacques Cousteau who kind of went in another direction in terms of uh, ocean and studying the ocean but landing on the moon was for me unbelievable you know and but how did we go from landing on the moon and then the Apollo program was kind of sidelined. And then there was an interest on let's explore other planets and then talk about how that transition in the timeline occurred to the first time we had physical contact with another planet, which I believe was, was it when the rover first went to Mars or was it another vehicle? Viking. Viking. So I was not around for a lot of this, um, mm. but having this as, as you know, part of, of what I do, I can speak somewhat knowledgeably, Apollo was epic. There is no, it, it's not just that it felt epic. Leaving Earth's gravity, sending humans out of Earth's gravity well, right. and having them return safely, putting them in another gravity well, and then bringing them back is by far the most difficult thing that humans have ever done. It is by far the most difficult things we've ever difficult. In the things status of Absolutely. computer science, like the, you know, my iPhone has probably a million times more computing power than they had. That's unbelievable. The communications are unbelievable. The propulsion is unbelievable. Right, but your iPhone exists because we went to the moon. Right. If you are going to miniaturize electronics to fit it into a, uh, a capsule that you can barely squeeze three guys into. 
Um, I think at one point it was John Glenn who talked about it was a little like trying to put a banana back in its skin, getting these guys into these capsules. Um, If you're going to miniaturize electronics in that way, then somebody 20 or 30 years later is going to go, oh, look, these widgets have already been made. Let's do something really incredible with them. So the entire um, computer revolution, the fact that you can carry uh, a phone that has more computing power than, I don't know, pretty much all of the Apollo capsules put together, um, and then some, um, is because we went to the moon. So epic epic is the right word. Um, why why did we take the arc that we did? Um, well, it's really expensive to send people places off off the planet. Um, it is cheaper um, and less difficult exponentially to send uh, spacecraft that don't have people in them. Well, we start with unmanned, by the way. We have Eileen Yingst. She is a senior research scientist with the Planetary Science Institute living here in Maine. So we started with unmanned craft, right? And then that seemed to work out all right. Right. And, you know, and then it got more advanced in terms of sending uh, rovers that could collect not only data, but literally collect minerals, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it was Mars chosen because it is uh, the most accessible or closest or it most approximates Earth's atmosphere. So there's some future interest in maybe, you know, colonizing Mars. Um, the easiest place to get to is the moon. Um, there is a, an old quote that says, if God had wanted man to be a spacefaring species, he would have given them a moon. Um, the moon is two light seconds away, two and a half light seconds away. There's, there's no comparison as to how easy it is to get to the moon and back than to get to Mars. It takes eight or nine months if you're going quickly. Um, uh, it, it, it's larger, so it's gravity well is larger. The atmosphere actually is thin enough so that we can't use it as humans, but thick enough so that it's a problem when it comes to landing. Um, but it does have an atmosphere. It is much bigger. It has once had liquid water and a significant amount of liquid water on the surface. All of those things are tremendously exciting for us as a species to understand a place that may once have been able to be habitable and why it's why why it was that way and why it's not that way anymore are, are very profound questions to answer and very important ones for helping us understand why earth is the way it is now and not like mars we have Eileen uh, Yingst here. She's senior research scientist, Planetary Science Institute. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O. So with, with your career starting out, um, how did that lead, A, to being here in Maine? And let's talk a little bit about the Planetary Science Institute and how that functions as an organization and what the relationship is with NASA, which I think is more well-known as kind of the iconic space agency. So it's a lot of questions, but um, so let me tell you about the Planetary Science Institute. Uh, this is an institution that is designed specifically for scientists to be able to be located off-site. So the headquarters are in Tucson, Arizona, and there is an office there, and there are some folks who are, are co-located there, but many of us are all around the world. And as long as we have the resources that we need to conduct our research or do our work, there's no reason with the amount of communication 
that's now available that I can't live in a beautiful place like Brunswick, Maine, um, and still do my work. So it's it's um, it's a very modern uh, model for how to do research, but I think it's it's the wave of the future. So what what exactly is the Planetary Science Institute? And talk about uh, how that relates to NASA, and then we'll talk about your work as a senior science scientist. So the Planetary Science Institute is a a, a, a nonprofit organization uh, designed to help facilitate planetary and space scientists to do the most excellent work that they can. Our relationship with NASA is that NASA is our primary funding organization. It opens up announcements of opportunity that allow you to propose for funding, to basically compete for funding, and individuals write proposals that compete for funding. So most of us are funded through NASA. There are a couple of us who have uh, NSF grants or NIH grants. Uh, but most of our grants come from NASA. So the linkage would be the federal government oversees federal programs, and NASA has, I don't even know where NASA reports in the federal government or if there's anyone there in Washington, D.C. right now to oversee them. <laughs> Deb, you may, you may know. But uh, so NASA is, has the, the primacy in terms of space program and exploration, and then they provide grants and linkage to organizations or institutes like the one you're part of that does specific research or advances the science and then contributes up to NASA. Is that- That's right. So NASA has priorities and they provide funding opportunities to further those priorities. And so I, as an individual, can propose a research project or I can put together a team, for example, to propose an instrument or a spacecraft for the next, you know, opportunity for flight. Right. Um, we have uh, Eileen Yinkst here. So what area do you specialize in? I was looking at some of your, your background, and it looks like you're um, – is the term investigator, is that a scientific term relative to a specific role or a level of either academic or, or scientific accomplishment? So when you're writing papers, it's not just a guy named Steve writing a paper. If you're an investigator or, in, in your case, many times a co-investigator of – different things. What does that even mean? So um, (laughs) that's an excellent question because we're all, we may be scientists, but we're also human beings and everybody likes titles so that they know where they fit in the world. Um, So a co-investigator is someone on a team that has a specific role. A deputy principal investigator or a principal investigator, those are individuals who have oversight over an entire team of co-investigators. So I am currently the deputy principal investigator for the MOLLE instrument, and that is the uh, camera on the end of the Curiosity rover's arm. So this is the camera that takes all of the self-portraits of the rover. Right. Um, And then I am also uh, the associate principal investigator for the Mars Exploration Rovers, and that is the Opportunity rover, which is currently in its 13th year of a 90-day mission. Wow. Let's talk about... The, the that particular area, and by the way, Deb, how many times have I mentioned my uh, exciting trip on the uh, Directv blimp? Many times, right? Many times. Yeah, this fits right into this of conversation. Of yes. course, it does. A few years. <laughs> Can't wait ago. to see where this is going. <laughs> oh, no, you'll you'll get we'll get there. We all may, right, we, I'm may ready. Have, we, we may have to go around the block. That's all right. But a few years ago at the U.S. Open, I was invited to go up on the Directv blimp. And it, 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 there's an aside story, but, you know, note to self, if they ever ask you your weight before you go on a blimp, 
uh, put vanity aside and give them the right number. <laughs> because as we were hovering around the U.S. Open and the blimp was sinking fast, the pilot was like, how much did you say you weighed? And it was like because of the heat and the envelope, the blimp couldn't get altitude. And I'm like, I thought it was for a T-shirt. I weigh more. So, <laughs> so anyhow, anyhow, we got through there. So one of the key functions of Goodyear blimps, DirecTV blimps, aside from being a giant billboard, is they have super high-definition uh, cameras below, and that's where they get the aerial shots. And so when you go up in one of these big sports blimps, there's a pilot, and then there's somebody operating the signage, and then there's a technician operating uh, by remote control the camera, and he or she is talking to the TV producer. But, you know, looking at the camera displays, and this was on, this compared to the stuff you're doing, whether it's... Uh, interplanetary or on the rover these cameras probably don't have the technology but this camera in the lens was a million dollar camera and lens and from five thousand eight thousand feet you could see you know roger federer sweating uh-huh. right and so um i don't know where i was going with that story but it's always fun to talk it's about riding fun. yeah riding on a blimp. Yes. it's always fun talking about riding in a blimp but let's get back i to, was going to say so if you want to pitch that to me i, I can i can take that I, well, can, I can do that for you well yeah so you and i have had similar high definition camera experiences you as an esteemed scientist me as a guy riding around in a blimp absolutely however i will tell you that that camera that you were looking at may very well be higher tech than the one on the rover or than the ones on the rover in some ways, simply because you plan your mission far in advance, right? So we, we won the, we won the uh, proposal portion of this to build Molly back in 2004, 2005. So that's, that's the technology from 2004, 2005. Um, and we've advanced since then. On the other hand, it is extremely difficult to send a camera of any kind to Mars and have it function in the, you know, hundreds of degree temperature variations that you get. The and pressure, the atmosphere, the, the temperature, the pressure. The Forget about the in pressure. The you know, you go from twenty degrees Fahrenheit on a really really hot day down to a hundred some below, um, and those that diurnal temperatures change all the time. And there's dust storms. There's all sorts of things. The Martian environment is very harsh. So we don't necessarily have the same resolution, but we've got different things that we have to worry about. Although, I will tell you that if you go online, you can see the orbital images from the high-rise camera that is orbiting Mars right now. And there are images there where you can see the rover from orbit. You can see the little rover. You can see its tracks. Wow. Right? There, there's one image where you can actually see the shadow of the mast on the ground. It's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. The other thing that's fascinating to me in terms of uh, Mars and exploration is how the the communication goes back to Earth. And is there a relay system where either the, uh, not the space, the space station plays a role or for every instruction that goes from Earth to Mars, how long does that take? And for every piece of data that has to return from Mars to Earth, how long does it take? So Mars um, and Earth uh, are never the same distance apart. So that right. that question is a kind of a moving target. I was testing you. Ah, well done. Because from my science <laughs> research, of course, everything's orbiting. Why would it be constant? Right. Well played. But <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, so twenty minutes is a good 
a, a good round number. It can be smaller than it can be shorter than that. It can be longer than that. But a twenty minute um, light time um, there and back for a signal. So forty minutes for a round trip is 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 a good average. Um, what that means is um, we cannot joystick the rover. We have to, um, what we do is we plan an entire Sol's worth of activities, a Martian day, a Sol. We plan an entire Sol's worth of activities and send that up to the rover all at once. So while the rover is executing Sol 1520, we're planning Sol 1521 on the ground. But we do use relay stations. We use the MRO, which is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, that's doing other work on Mars. And then we have... So that's a spaceship that's constant orbit. Orbiting Mars, right. And it's not manned, right? Right. And it passes over the rover, you know, something like twice per sol. And so we can talk to it then. And then when it has an opportunity to see Earth, then it will talk to Earth. Because presumably the rover only has so much, only has either so much energy or connectivity that it can link up there through the atmosphere. And then the orbiting has a stronger signal that can go back towards the Earth. Well, it points to the Earth more often. Right. And, um, but, but to your point, uh, there's only so much data volume you can send up at a time because there's only so much data volume that, that, the, that the spacecraft can take on. So it's the same thing as, is my thumb drive full or not, right? Every image takes a certain amount of space on that drive, and there's only so much that you can send up at a time. And so that's that's part of our constant. Um, when I'm on tactical, that's part of the that's part of the equation of what we can do every day. Uh, part of part of that is determined by how much space we have in in our buffer to talk to the relay stations. Well, we have uh, Dr. Eileen Yankst. Here, she is a senior research scientist with the Planetary Science Institute. They do work and research in conjunction with NASA. So how did you get to Brunswick other than, you know, presumably by plane or car? (laughs) And when you talk about being on tactical, do you, and again, if there's some sort of NSA secret here, um, (laughs) we don't want to break this to our two or three listeners. So we'll, we'll, we'll all agree to keep this. But at your, at your home or your office, do you have like a mini research facility with high-definition screens and you have information? Or do you have a laptop that when you're on tactical, you're talking to Mars at, at, at your kitchen while your friends or family are eating dip or something? You're, you know, how, how much of a command center do we have or do you have here in Brunswick? Um, I love giving this answer. The answer is all of the above. I have a beautiful high definition double screen um, down in my basement um, that hooks into my laptop. Um, but I have also conducted rover operations in my kitchen. Wow. Um, because that's where I needed to be at the time. I need a phone, I need an internet connection, and I need chat. Um, we conduct a lot of our work over, over a program like WebEx, and it has it, it there there are benefits to being at the jet propulsion laboratory um but 90% of what i do i can do from brunswick and to answer your first question the reason we're in brunswick is because my husband got a job uh in freeport oh fantastic so i am totally portable how cool is that right that's very so when when you're connecting from brunswick you mentioned the jet propulsion where is you know where does that signal from you in your kitchen, 
as you're preparing dinner or breakfast, go, and then it, it, it's got to be some sort of super radio magnetic transmitter, <laughs> sort of what we have at WLOB. Sure. It must be. We're, sure. we're, so we're in similar businesses because yes. both on AM and FM, we're sending a signal out we there. We are sending one. Uh, but where does your signal go, and, and how does that technology work? It's actually uh, simpler than you might think. So again, because because I am uh, part of a group that is planning the next SOLS activities, what we do is we take all of the science observations that we want to do, and we put those all together using programs on the ground, uh, and that's all bundled up together, funneled into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, and the individuals there that are responsible for doing that. And then all of that gets sent up in one big packet, right, from JPL. So when I'm communicating to is JPL... Is that in Florida or Texas? Where is JPL? Pasadena, California. Pasadena, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, Florida is, is Launch Point, and Texas, Houston, Texas is... Is, is where the problems go. So when people <laughs> say, Houston, we have a problem, you go to Houston. That's, that's actually accurate, because when you have a manned mission or a human mission... Um, mission control is in is in Houston. Right. Wow. So, so let me ask you: You're involved in in preparing all of their the work that they're going to do for the next day on that little rover. Do you ever receive any of the data that's coming back? Are you involved in that as well? Right. So it's important to remember that I'm a scientist, and as much as I enjoy doing the tactical process and facilitating getting that data. The data is my stock and trade. Mm-hmm. Um, for me to be able to tell you something about Martian geology, it's that data that I need. So, um, so at the same time we are sending stuff up, we're getting stuff back, mm-hmm. right? So we have, we have two passes from uh, MRO and we have two passes from a spacecraft called Odyssey. Um, and occasionally we'll get a direct-to-Earth but every time that happens, if we're sending something up, that's great, but we're also getting something back. And all of that data uh, is my stock in trade. I'm mostly interested in images, and anybody who's interested in seeing any or all of the images from Curiosity or Spirit or Opportunity, they are all almost immediately downloaded um, to the public website, uh, the JPL public website. So nice. if you would like to see what I'm looking at, it's all there. Just go to JPL. I mean, I don't know what the JPL.nasa.gov. JPL. Fantastic. Yep. What? How many rovers or how much research do we have currently active on Mars? And I read somewhere months ago that there was some, and I apologize for not knowing which one of these little rover guys, but one of them has lasted way beyond its expected lifespan. Yes. Because uh, I don't know if they're solar generated and so there was no way to really predict how long the battery pack or the solar unit would still work but so what do we actually have right this minute going on up in mars i want you to think about that question that you just asked me for a minute and think about what a profound question you just asked me what resources do we have on mars right now not do we not are we going to mars We've got multiple resources orbiting and driving on Mars. How astounding is that? It, 20 years ago, you could never have said that. It's just absolutely amazing to me. Um, we have Curiosity, which is a rover about the size and weight of a Mini Cooper. It's about 3,000 pounds. It's a little over six, six and a half feet tall. And then we have Opportunity, 
which is the Mars Exploration Rover. And Opportunity is about the size of a golf cart. It is solar-powered. Uh, it's smaller, so it can be solar-powered. Curiosity is powered by a radioisotope thermonuclear generator, and so it's got a little plug of plutonium about the size of a pencil eraser that powers this thing. Um, but Opportunity is solar-powered. So it is 13 years into a 90-day mission. It is how many years? 13 years. Into? A 90-day mission. So it was engineered with a mission scope of, hey, we only want you, we only need you to count on like 90 days, and it just keeps going and going and going? Right. So um, the engineers that design and build these spacecraft are the best in the business and just incredible, dedicated uh, individuals. And so we are um, constrained to design missions that have death dates because they're funded, and funding cycles begin and funding cycles end. So your nominal mission is designed to have an end date that matches your funding cycle. Um, so with Opportunity, we have had to ask for an extended mission 13 times. Wow. Um, Please give us a little more money so we can keep doing work on Because ours. regardless of what's it doing, you need all the technology here to you utilize it. So that's where the other funding comes what from. What you need is people. Right. What you need is the people to run it. The somebody in Brunswick. Somebody expertise. in Brunswick. Somebody in California. <laughs> somebody in that's right. Arizona. That's right. That's wow. right. Wow. We have uh, Dr. Eileen Yangst here, and she is Senior Research Scientist, Planetary Science Institute. Uh, uh, a, a group that works hand-in-hand hand with NASA. So since we first put a, um, a vehicle on Mars, and since we f- have first sent back data, and so it's taking all kinds of data, and the f- I think the first vehicle was more atmospheric stuff, and then we've had vehicles that can, like, reach down, analyze rock, and send, you know, the, the makeup of geology Somehow we figured out that there are areas of Mars that looks like there was some moisture, some water, some sort of HTO, H2O, uh, which would be obviously a founding element for life form. Um, what are the most important discoveries? So somewhere along the line, uh, this has been funded by taxpayer funding, and when we were going to the moon and we could see people hopping around the moon and we could see the flag and uh, the Apollo program brought us Tang, which is a deli- delicious powdered orange drink, <laughs> and, and Velcro and other things. And some, as you said earlier, not to make light of it, some critical scientific uh, discoveries that have since gone about everyday life. It's, it's, it's not just right. about space travel. But what have we specifically learned? If so, if it was an ROI type thing and the American public was saying, We've spent X number of billion dollars keeping our space program active as new technologies come online. We're going further. We're seeing further into the galaxy. We're learning more about, um, you know, there's the existential element of where are we in the galaxy, and there's also the practical, uh, how we're functioning. What have we specifically learned in Mars that would be part of like an ROI study on we've spent this and now we know this? So there are two answers to that question, and the short answer is, if I were to if I were to pick one thing, it would be that Mars has so many things that make it similar to Earth, 
and yet it has had such a profoundly different history, geologically speaking, that understanding why Earth is an outlier um, is, is going to have profound implications for our own history on this planet. But the longer answer is that research, scientific research, pure scientific research, does not play well to a political cycle or a two-year funding cycle or a four-year funding cycle um, because it's a slow process. The period between um, the first suggestion of plate tectonics, which is the idea that the crust of the Earth is made up of individual plates and that's why you have volcanoes where you do and that's why you have earthquakes where you do and so on, uh, was first brought out in the 1930s, and it was not accepted until the 1980s, when it was truly confirmed as this is this is the paradigm, this is the way the Earth is. Um, it takes that long to take all of the the noise and all of the well, what about this? What about that? All of the different hypotheses and all of the different um, criticisms of those hypotheses and distill it down into the kernel which is the facts. It takes a long time to do that. Scientific facts, because now we live in where there's alternative facts and there's political facts and there's, everyone has, a, has the, you know, their own adventure on what they believe or don't. Well, but, but science has to be rooted in, in facts that are, are measurable over time, and that's kind of the critical element of science, right? Well, facts are facts. And you can call facts uh, alternative facts, or you can call them lies, or you can call them um, kumquats, but they're still facts. They don't stop being facts because we've decided to call them something different. Right. Um, gravity has a measurable, calculable um, relationship that works whether I decide to jump off a cliff or not. Chemical reactions occur at the speed that they occur, whether that's convenient for me and my burning house or not. Um, three is greater than two, whether that's convenient for me or not. Facts are facts. And Donald Trump's inauguration was much, much smaller, like his hands, than <laughs> uh, Barack Obama's. I think, I think we would consider that also a fact. Facts yes. are facts. Yes, okay. but... But can we agree that in science, as we gain more knowledge, facts can change or morph? No. Why? Facts do not change. Facts are facts. Individuals spend their lives trying to distill down the various facts that often look contradictory but are not once we understand them better. Then in some cases, how can we go get to a fact is everything just theory no everything is not just theory you observe right you record right and then you take what you have learned and you put it out for the community to pick apart so that when i write a paper the editor will look at that paper and go oh eileen has said that john smith's um uh uh, results in this last test that he did are bogus. I'm going to have John Smith review this paper, and John Smith is going to pick apart my paper um, to to death. And that's why when the scientific process is done, you don't end up with theories in in the English sense. You end up with the theory of relativity, right? 
which is the comprehensive worldview that fits all of the mathematical equations and the facts and the observations that we know. Okay. Interesting. Well, let me get back to Mars for a second because then we want to get into climate change, which, you know, Deb will break through the window in just a second because we love having that discussion. But, <laughs> but specifically for Mars, and I think you were talking about, you know, some of the, the science, but are there any discoverable uh, details that are being utilized or is it all building towards greater understanding? Is it more of a continuum of the more we know and the more we advance propulsion, communication, research, and the further we see into space, we learn things about kind of the origin of Earth, or are there specific things specific to Mars where you could say two years ago we found this, or a new mineral, and that mineral could have magical qualities that, that, that have some immediate value or, or near value for Earth? So both of those things are true. Um, it's, as I said, important to study Mars because in the same way that a doctor can't look at simply one patient and really understand how that patient works without seeing that patient in context, right. we have to understand Earth by looking at other planets, by seeing what's, what's normal and what's not. Otherwise, we don't know the right questions to ask. Um, do I think that there are, are discoveries that are going to change people's lives as I move forward with the work that I do? Absolutely. It's why I can look at my kids at the end of the day and say, I made your lives better. Um, Seven dollars out of every one that we invest in space exploration comes back into the economy. That's an incredible investment. And it usually comes back in terms of understanding things better, uh, whether it's technology or medicine or whatever. But it's a long time period. It's not a two-year time period. It's a 20-year time period. We have Dr. Eileen Yingster here in the studio. She is a senior research scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O. Let's look forward for a minute. Um, there is, you know, when you look at the trajectory of NASA and our space program, which I think really started with, you know, uh, JFK's commitment uh, to put a person in space, and that was both about science and national pride. But from there, where we orbited the Earth, and there where we landed on the moon, and now we're, we're going further out both with Hubble uh, telescopes and radio telescopes that are seeing further and further out into space. What's your view as a scientist where we go over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Because it's a funding question. It's a political question. It's an economic question in terms of the will of the people because it's an expensive enterprise. And where do you see us going and where would you like to see us going based on your work? Um, I think you, you answered a lot of the question already. It is, it's a question of will. It's a question of money. It's a question of priorities. Um, and I'm not here to sit here and say that I think space exploration is the very highest priority this country should not. That's not what it's about. What I can say is that everybody that, that I work with, all of us, understand the profound um, uh, responsibility that we have for doing what we're doing because not only are we using taxpayer money, and we are taxpayers, um, so we appreciate that, but we are doing science um, for the ages. We're not coming back here anytime soon, and so we have a we, we understand the profound responsibility that rests on our shoulders, and we all take it very, very seriously. 
Um, I'm not sure where, where we're headed. I can tell you what's in the pipeline. Um, the Mars 2020 is in the pipeline as the next rover. It's supposed to cache a sample that we will then go back and pick up. Um, so what does that mean? So in, in literally the year 2020, because there's a long uh, right. timeline, there's a, uh, a unit being created, developed, engineered, programmed that takes off in 2020? Correct. Mm-hmm. And then it tra- is it nine months or how long? Something it, like that. Something like that, yep. depending on the weather. A, <laughs> <laughs> solar flares. So this, you know, in the continuum of Mars research has to be the most advanced unit. So from opportunity and from curiosity, this one has to have newer technology, newer lenses, newer gaskets, newer power redundancy and all that other stuff. So... What is this one doing again, taking samples or, or being able to analyze mineral samples more detailed or doing or, or mapping out Mars, which in itself is kind of an important thing? So Mars 2020's mission is to cache, C-A-C-H-E, uh, samples for later return. Those samples being uh, samples that uh, we hope will inform Mars as a habitable planet. To physically return? To physically return. It would be a separate mission, though, and we, the idea there is that it will take so long to scientifically pick the most uh, robust and reasonable samples that uh, it makes sense to send a big old rover with lots of sexy science instruments first, and you do all that work, and then you put everything in a little box of some sort, and then... You shoot it into orbit? No, you, you, you send something to pick that box up. Oh, Right. I, I, again, for, you know, I took seventh grade science, but how about if we shoot it up? It feels, <laughs> have, have, have you and your colleagues looked at Steve's um, plan, which would be to have something with some propulsion? So instead of having a big unit go through the atmosphere, which is a tricky exercise, you just shoot something up and then something in orbit grabs it. Right. And that's certainly been talked about. Um, the concern there is that you have to take the fuel with you. Right. So. Which is the big issue. Yeah. It, every, everything you want to bring back, you have to take with you. Wow. So, in, in relating to the Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence blockbuster movie from a few months ago, do you guys remember what that was? They go into space. Do you remember that? They were supposed to go into space. Passengers. In, passengers. <laughs> and they were supposed to be in stasis for like 10 years. In the obvi- 90 years. 90 years. Holy and then, man. And then you know, like the two best good look the, the two best looking people in the in the world or on this whole spaceship both wake up together Duh. and they find love. <laughs> okay. But they're traveling in space. So space is so to me it's curious, both in terms of the physical properties. Are you guys and- wondering where this is going? We always we <laughs> all get there. We always yeah. wonder. Okay. We always we always get there. We go through the bridge, under the tunnel, whatever all right. it is. I'm, I'm with you. I'm hanging on. Go ahead. But what about the intersection? Because there's nothing controversial about this next question I have. It has to do with theology. Okay. Because you and I share a history in parochial school. It feels like you went all the way through and I got kicked out in third grade. But theology in space and the Earth's history and how old the Earth is, and now we're looking in, in now we have greater understanding. And I think most of your training has been as a geologist, so you have immense training in physical properties and rock. Um, where does that butt up against science? Because that, that's a, you know, if the earth is only so 
much old, and I don't want to get into creationism to evolution, but you know, the, I think that there's something along the lines of the primate thing. But how does that affect the business of being a scientist dealing in space when you also have a belief system that contradicts much of the science involving space? So I can only speak for myself, but I, I would disagree with your premise that science and theology disagree with each other. They answer very, very different questions. Science is about fact, and theology is more about truth. And sometimes a fact can be truth, but they are, they are, they are different issues. Um, as far as my parochial upbringing, uh, I am still a practicing Seventh-day Adventist, and I don't see any um, uh, issues with that at all. Uh, Psalms says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and I think that's absolutely true. If there is a place where the the facts that I have seen and my theology uh, are mutually exclusive, um, that's my issue. Um, I am humble enough to know that I don't know everything. Um, but anytime you ignore one truth for another truth or one fact for another fact, you've got problems. Um, you have to retain both of them. And as a scientist, that's something that we're trained to do, to hold mutually exclusive hypotheses in our head until we let the facts simmer out and um, uh, we but understand facts, them better. But if facts are proven and truths can be subjective— I don't want to get into rock, That's paper, scissors. That's more philosophy, though, I know, right? But I don't want is to get is rock, truth paper. subjective? I think facts <laughs> cover truth. I think back to your earlier statement about, you know, when, when we were ganging up on Deb and uh, saying facts. In say saying, again, I just paraphrased, but when we were saying facts are, uh, are, are you know, a, a, a distillation process where it's proven and it can be tested and it's a reoccurring fact. Right. Whereas truth can be subjective, it can be part of a belief system. It no. can be. It can be. A truth is so personal, especially now these days, where every individual, you know, chooses their own adventure. Where this is my truth, and that's your truth, or this is this group's truth, or this tribe, or this people. So I would actually make the statement that truth is less mutable than fact. But that is a philosophical point. The reason that science and religion seem to be incompatible is because people try and make science um, fit their religion or people try to make their religion fit their science. It does go both ways. But the fact is that science is a way of looking at the natural world and explaining the natural world in a regulated way. There are rules. One of those rules is that any scientific hypothesis has to be falsifiable. You have to be able to explain how you can prove that wrong. And when you're talking about religion, those are not the questions that you're asking. You're asking, why am I here? They're, those are why questions, right? Why am I here? Why am I the person that I am? Those are very different questions than the questions that I'm trying to answer as a scientist. It's not that one is better than the other. It's that you don't teach English with a calculus book and you don't try and parse Shakespeare sonnets using math. They are different languages. 
Okay. We have Dr. Eileen Yankst here. She is Senior Research Scientist. In our last few seconds, I just read a story uh, fairly recently about um, a quadang- a quadrangle? You know, quadrangle. A quadrangle on Mars that was been named Bar Harbor. So as you're mapping Mars, was that was that your doing as, as a nod to uh, your your you know your uh, your home state now? Um, actually, somebody else named the Bar Harbor Quad, but that was back in two, two, 2012 when I was still living in Green Bay. Oh, okay. Um, but we are now traveling. The rover's now traveling in the Bar Harbor Quad. A quadrangle is just a square piece of real estate that helps us reg, uh, regularize how we map things instead of trying to just you know go out in every direction. We cut it in pieces. And the Bar Harbor Quad, every target in the Bar Harbor Quad is named after a feature or a geologic formation in Maine. Wow. So I have been very honored and very pleased and tickled, frankly, to assist in putting together those names and pulling those names when I'm on tactical and going, hey, how about, you know, Eagle Island today? Let's that's, use that target name. That's funny. Well, we've run out of time. Can you give the uh, URL again where... For our listeners who may be interested in following this in terms of all the data and the pictures or video that's uh, that's part of Mars exploration. JPL.nasa.gov. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. I think science is fascinating. And uh, Deb, it, it, you know. Yes, I agree. I know science <laughs> is your favorite subject. So I uh, would love to have you come back sometime. And uh, thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's fascinating. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. We'll be back next week.